Well, Happy New Year, friends. Well, it's good to get started, and there's no better way than discussing the topic of God in our everyday lives. Now, I don't know about you, uh, but when I think about God in everyday lives, uh, I, I think, well, okay, isn't he in our day all the time? Why are we doing this series? What does that even mean? And today, I hope to help you understand that the way that we function oftentimes does not present the idea of God in our everyday lives. And today, I want to just build a case for that. And over the next handful of weeks together, we're going to dive into a myriad of topics that help us understand how God should be present in our everyday lives. And today, we're going to build a foundational truth that if you don't understand this, you won't understand anything else from here on. And we're going to begin in a few moments together in Genesis chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. While you're turning there, I want to welcome those that are joining us on our Edgewood campus and online. We're so glad to have you hanging out with us. And today uh, is a message that has already begun to resonate on my heart. And I'm going to teach and, and really preach this morning as if this may be the last message I ever share with you. I have no idea what my my week holds. I have no idea when it is that the Lord will take me home. But the idea of God in your everyday lives simply begins with this premise that I am here for the glory of God and for the good of those around me. And you happen to be the people today around me. And so I has counted a privilege to serve you. But I also want to serve you with excellence. And I'm going to give you everything I have. And so for those of you that are first-time guests, my, our first encounter may feel a little intense. Um, <laughs> But I just pray that you would know, like, hey, my heart and my intensity and my zeal is simply for the glory of God and for the good of you. And, and that, I pray, is something we can connect in. Now, real quickly, if you turn with me in Genesis chapter 1, the reason this is so foundational is because you have to see what God established in the very beginning. Now, there's a lot of us uh, that you might be on a reading plan. Maybe you've committed this year uh, as a resolution or as a goal to make it through your Bible and started in Genesis. Well, this is not going to be new to you if you started a reading plan because you've already read this. But let me just remind all of us in the room of something that maybe you've already heard before. But in Genesis chapter 1, there's a foundational truth in verse 1 that simply says, as this, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the reason this is so foundational is because if you are going to believe the idea of God in your everyday life, you have to first believe that there's a God who created everything that you see and know, and even the things you don't see and know, Colossians 1. Now, if you and I are not at that place, and you go, you know what, I just can't get there. I, I just don't know that God created everything. Then here's what I would encourage you to do. Hey, would you just get with me? Uh, you can go to our website as well. Go to our leadership tab. Send me an email. I would love to have a cup of coffee. Like, just hear where you are. Maybe I can answer some questions. Maybe you could teach me a few things as well. But at least let's have a conversation. But for many of us in this room, we would say, no, I believe that God is the creator. And what you're saying there is in the beginning, God created heavens, the earth. You're saying that God is indeed the intelligent designer, that there was one who saw fit to create everything we see and know. Now in verse 2, it goes on, it says, and the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now there's a couple of interesting things here that I see in verse 2. One of those is that you see the spirit of God 
which is a part of the triune nature of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You see his spirit already existing at the very beginning of creation. It just helps you know and understand that the, 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 the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, this triune concept that is very difficult for many of us to comprehend, was already at work at the beginning because God exists in three persons. But I'll tell you the most interesting statement in verse 2 is this, that the earth was without form and void. The idea is that there was nothing to behold. It was without form and it was without void, which simply is the idea that it was empty and formless. Now, what is crazy is, is that you see over the handful of days of creation, beginning with the first day is you see God say, let there be light. There was light from darkness. Then from there, God creates um, the expanse of, of the heavens. Then from there, he creates the earth and he puts the moon and the stars in place and also appoints a, a daytime light called the sun. He does all these things. He creates all these things to multiply and fill the earth from things that, that are flying in the air to crawling along the ground to even the de- depths of the sea. He creates in five days and on the sixth day, he creates something uniquely different, something that is in his image. Matter of fact, we pick up on that in verse 26 and 27, where it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now there, God does something different. That means distinct from every aspect of creation. He calls this creation, the sixth day, which was made after the image of God, very good. Which is different than any, every, any and every other day in creation, which he just said, hey, it was, it was good. We are very good. But the question you got to ask yourself is, why are we very good? And that is because in verse 26, it says, God said, let us make man in our image. Now, real quick, just caveat, side note, is that you see there that God says, let us, there's plurality there, make man in our image, in our likeness. You see that? It wasn't a singular tense. God didn't say, hey, let me make man in my image. He says, in our image. So there again, you see the plurality of the Godhead at work. You see Father, Son, Holy Spirit all present there in the very first part of creation. Now, what's also interesting is that you see how it goes on. And it says, and let them, meaning the creation, us, humans, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So the idea is that we are God's image bearers. And there's a couple of things that you have to distinctly put in your heart and mind even right now. One is that you are created with purpose. And God took something that was empty, without form, it was void, and he gave it distinct purpose. And that was throughout the earth. But then he set you and I aside to be his image bearers. Now, why that's important is there is nothing else on planet earth that reflects the image of God like you and I. So all the beasts of the field, all the birds of the air, all the fish of the sea, everything that exists does not establish God's handiwork the way that you and I are created. We are set apart. Not only are we set apart, it also said that we are to have dominion over all of the other things. So we are not only friends of God, we operate as if we are companions with God. That's how it was designed. Matter of fact, you don't believe that. You might even wonder, well, what was it that they did? Look over in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. God 
succinctly tells Adam to do two things. Look what he says. He says, the Lord God then took man, which is Adam, and he put him in the Garden of Eden. And then he says, you are to work it and to keep it. Now, if you were on a reading plan, there's a great chance that you just kind of read through that. You've already read this before. You're like, okay, yeah, he's tending to some fruit, you know? Like, is that what his purpose is? But what's interesting is, is that you do a deep dive into these words, it is far more than tending to some oranges. He says, I want you to work it and keep it. Now, he uses that word work, and it's the Hebrew word avod. The word avod means a variety of different things, and you see it throughout the Old Testament in lots of different ways. But one of those ways is to work it. Another idea is to keep it. A great word used time and time and time again, the same word avod is to cultivate it. It's the idea to to do something new, but it's also the word that you see a variety of times in the Old Testament to worship. It is the same concept. And so when he says, I want you to work it, he goes, I want you to tend to it. I want you to cultivate it. I want you to worship. I want your life to revolve around the things that I was created you to do, which is to be image bearers of me, to keep and cultivate all the things that I have given you to have dominion over. But he doesn't just say, hey, I want you to work it. He also says to keep it. And he uses the Hebrew word there, shamar. Everybody say shamar. See, there you go. You got a Hebrew word, shamar. Now, shamar literally means to keep it or look over it. It means to protect, to guard. It's the same idea that you'll get later in the Old Testament as a watchman on his post. It's someone who watches over. It's the New Testament concept that you would oftentimes hear us say a steward. It's someone who's steward. So here it is. God created man and woman. He puts them in the garden. He goes, I want you to work it. I want you to cultivate new things. I want you to worship me. I want you to do everything you can to tend to the things that I've made you a steward over. You're to protect it. Keep it. You're a watchman on your post. You're going to name all the animals. You're going to enjoy all the fruits of your labor. And this is how I designed you to live. And that was the design. Now, we don't have to read much further in our Bible to know that the design gets broken pretty quickly. But friends, even though the design is broken very quickly, it does not change God's original intent. God's original intent was to have us as his vice regents. We are the second in charge. We have full access to him. And we were created to cultivate and to watch over, to preserve and protect We were meant to offer something to the world and to God. Matter of fact, the title of my message this morning is simply for the glory of God and the good of others. That's why you and I exist still today, for the glory of God and the good of others. And I will tell you that you might struggle with that, but let me just put it for you up on the screen real quickly so you understand, and, and maybe you can just think about it. As image bearers, we are meant today even to do two things, to cultivate and to contribute. And that's what I want you to ask yourself today. Am I cultivating anything new? Am I contributing in any meaningful way? Am I cultivating anything new, and am I contributing in any meaningful way? Because, friends, if you're not, then you're missing out on God's ultimate design. And you certainly are not being all that he has for you in your everyday life. And I would just make you this argument. Whether you're like the 
the Israelites in Egypt, and you are in rigorous slaving, working away, that still is an opportunity. Whether you are like the priesthood, laboring and sacrifice for others, it's an opportunity. Whether you are worshiping and singing like the psalmist declares in Psalm 100, whether you're exalting God in verbal ways, it's an opportunity to work and to cultivate and worship. Whether you're doing tedious, skilled craftsmanship, very intricate labor like they were preparing the tabernacle, you are still working, cultivating, worshiping. That's the idea. And I would tell you that the only prohibition that we really see in Scripture to doing these things is to make sure we don't do it as to make a name for ourselves or to be slothful in doing what we know is good. So we are clearly meant to work. It's a part of the very original design, which is the problem oftentimes that we see in our culture, that we want somebody else to work for us, or even more than that, sometimes if we're not careful, we want to not work so that others will do something for us. But friends, the problem with that design is that you are not contributing and cultivating the way that God designed you to do. And so what does that mean? It means the very thing that Paul said to the church of of Colossae in Colossians chapter 3. He just put it this way, a little different way that we would understand. He says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So he goes, whatever you do in your work, in your cultivating, in your tending, you are to watch over, preserve, protect, and you are to steward the resources that God has given you. Now, here's the challenge, is that sometimes we think that this idea of working and cultivating or the word that we would associate it with as worship is something that we do once a week. Like we are okay with coming to church. We're okay with singing a few songs. Sometimes we raise our hands. Sometimes we feel the beat. Sometimes we are moved by the melody. And sometimes we go, man, that was just good worship. But the challenge with that concept alone is that that's only one aspect of what God desires for us. And so absolutely God wants us to sing with all of our heart. And we're going to talk about worship soon and what that really means for us in everyday life. But friends, it doesn't stop there. And over the course of our next few moments together, I want to make the case as to why we as an American church have missed connecting our Sunday to Monday. That somehow we think that our worship reflects one day a week as opposed to every day of our week. And so friends, I just want you to hear that worship revolves around every day of your life. Every day, every aspect, every moment, every minute, every second, is revolving around the God of creation who has created you and I to cultivate and to contribute. Dorothy Sayers, uh, she wrote an article in the middle of, kind of towards the end of World War II. And she uh, is very poignant, and she is also very stern in her idea of what a Christian is to contribute in everyday life. And she says this, and it won't be the, every, the only time you hear from it, from her today, but it says, she says this, how can anyone remain interested in a religion which seems to have no concern with nine-tenths of his life? Meaning, why would anybody want to go to church one day a week when you don't talk about anything practical for the rest of their week? She goes on and she says this. She says, the church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him not to be drunk or disorderly in his leisure hours. Hey, when you're framing a house, don't get drunk. And by the way, I want to see you at church on Sunday. And bring your family too. 
She says, what the church should be telling him is this. The very first demand on his religion makes it upon him is that he should make good tables. That he he ought to be the best framer there is. It's the idea that, hey, if you are going to exemplify the idea and the work of a Christian, that it means that you are to be excellent in everything you do. I heard a story recently about a group of guys who were building onto their pastor's house. It was a little parsonage. And they built onto the back of it a little awning, a little, a little porch area. And the pastor was pretty pleased. The problem was a few weeks later it began to rain and the porch was not holding up completely. In which then the pastor called a handful of other guys in the church. The other guys came into the to, to the pastor. This is a true story, by the way. And, uh, and he goes, hey, listen, uh, like my porch isn't holding up. And they began to inspect it and, and look at it. And he goes, well, listen, we're going to have to take all this off and kind of start over. It was pretty shoddy work. And he goes, well, oh, oh John, I mean, he was a carpenter. I mean, he, he well, yeah, John, John didn't serve you, although that's okay. John is a really good Christian. In which the friend who was there helping goes, hey, you can be a good Christian, but what you needed was a good carpenter. (laughs) But here's the problem. Is that we hire a ton of good Christians who are not good in their trade. And that is not a reflection of the God who created you as an image bearer in his image. And that is the disconnect. That is why people don't want to come to our churches. Yes, you call it hypocrisy, you call it whatever. No, the problem is, is that there's not a difference in our lives every day. And we've got to close that gap. And that's my challenge to you. And the reason why is because we are image bearers. Now, you might struggle with the concept of image bearers. Yeah, like you've heard that, we're creating the image of God. But have you ever struggled to identify like what that even means? I have, and I did. For a long, many years, I would visualize God in my head, and oftentimes I would see the, the image and the, the picture of Jesus Christ. That's who I think. I attribute God as Jesus. I only see the Son of God. I struggle with the Spirit, struggle with the Father, right? So I just have this image of Jesus. But the challenge is, is that if you have that image, you're missing out on who God really is. And so today, I want to show you just quick, I'm going to list them for you real quickly, just who God is. And then I'm going to show you how you are a reflection of who he is as an image bearer. The first one is, is that God is spirit. God is spirit, which means that there is no tangible way to work him up in your head. If he is spirit, it means that you and I cannot come up with a good idea of who he is. It's which, why he told Moses, hey, who do I tell Pharaoh that you are? Who do I tell the people that you are? He goes, you just tell them I am who I am, which means you can't comprehend me. You can't see me because I am spirit. And we struggle because we want our God to be physical, but he is spirit. And so because he is spirit, he has the ability to be everywhere at all times, all-knowing, omniscient, all-powerful, all these things that you and I cannot possess in ourselves. And so we struggle to understand how are we made in the image of God if he is spirit. He is also the creator. We see that. So he's spirit. He's the creator, creates everything we see and know. And Colossians 1, even the things we don't see and know, he creates which makes him distinctly different than everything we know. He is also holy. This idea of holy is a thing that you see in the text, oftentimes in, uh, in sync together multiple times. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Isaiah say it, said it, John referenced to it in, in, in uh, Revelation. Peter actually commissioned his 
people in his letter to be holy as Christ is holy. The idea here is that he is holy. He is set apart. And that is one of his attributes that you and I cannot possess in and of ourselves. He is distinctly different. You see that? He is spirit. He is creator. He is holy. It doesn't stop there. He is also omniscient. I listed omniscient because it's the best word I could come up with for all-knowing. So all-knowing means he knows everything that has ever happened. And he continues to know, even in his foreknowledge, what will happen. He is also personal. So how can a God who is spirit, who is the creator of all things, who is all-knowing and also perfectly holy, how can he be personal? How can he have any desire to have a relationship with us if we are none of those things? But yet he is personal. He is personal in his nature, and he is also immutable. The idea of immutable, if you're taking notes, is that he never changes. You don't have to word, write a word that you'll never use again. But he never changes. It means he's always the same. He is, yes, he is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. He is the one who is always the same. It means that you and I nor anyone else can thwart his plans, and no one can change his mind. He is the same. That is who God is. The question is, is If that is who God is, how in the world am I an image bearer? Like, how do I reflect him? If I don't reflect him physically, then how else do I reflect him? And I'm going to show you that all the qualities that I just showed you, how you and I reflect him. We resemble him, first in spirit. How do you reflect him in in the spirit? Well, here's the deal. You are spiritual. Just a handful of months ago, we learned around here that we live in a spiritual world. You don't see it, oftentimes don't acknowledge it, struggle to believe that it's real, but we live in a spiritual realm. And there is a spiritual war going around us. Angels are designed in the spiritual realms to help us. Demons ultimately designed in their fallen nature to harm us. But in the midst of our spiritual realm, what I need you to know is that you are a reflection of God in a spiritual manner, in a spiritual way. And then you go, I don't know if I believe that. I struggle with that. Well, I would just tell you this. It's true. And let me show you how it's true. We are bodies with souls, right? We are not bodies with souls, but we are souls that have bodies. Now, the reason I say that is is that we often see it as, hey, we are bodies that have souls as opposed to, hey, we have a soul that has a body. But when you take your last breath, where does your body go? To the dust. Where does your soul go? To the heavens. Or potentially to Sheol, to the bottom of the earth. But your your soul, your spirit is designed to live forever. And so temporarily you have a tent, a house, a meeting place, just like the tabernacle, just like the temple was, a, 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 a place in time and space that exists for a short amount to inhibit and experience the Spirit of God within us. Now, the Spirit of God is put in our lives when we recognize that God is not only the Creator, but when we turn to Him as our Father, as our friend, through the mediation and the blood of Christ. Matter of fact, in John, we see this in chapter 14. It's the encounter that you hear that Jesus is about to tell the disciples he's going away. And he goes, hey, don't worry. If I go away, I'm going to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I'm going to come back and receive you, to, receive you unto myself. And then he goes, hey, you just need to know that where I'm going, hey, you'll also be. I'm the way, the truth of life. Anyone who comes to me, or you know, no one comes to me except you know, through the Son, right? Uh, anyone who comes to the Father, be by me. 
so the challenge, though, there is that then Thomas doubts a little bit, and he goes, hey, I, but I don't understand, like, where you're going to go. And then Jesus explains this in John chapter 14, verses 15 through 18. He goes, listen, if you love me, you're going to keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and then he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor, nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells in you and will be with you and in you. And I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. The idea, Jesus says to his disciples, hey, it's best that I go away. I'm going to the Father, but if I go, I'm going to come back. But the reason I go is because you're going to need a more suitable helper. In your spirit, you need my spirit. Jesus was was, was all God, but he was also all man. And because of that, he was limited in time and space, whereas God the Father with his spirit is not limited by time and space. And so he makes his residence in our lives with his spirit wherever we go, he goes. And so we are an expression of him in spirit. Our physical body is going to return to the dust. Our physical body is a reminder every day of our fallen nature and our sinfulness. Our spirit is being renewed day by day after its creator. Our spirit is what has to be changed by the glory of God, for the glory of God, and for the good of others. If our spirit is not changed, we are carrying around what? Death. But if we have a new spirit, then we have life. A very difficult and challenging concept oftentimes, but the reality is we resemble God spiritually. We also resemble God creatively. So in just as God is creator, friends, you and I are to be creators. Now here's the difference. God creates out of nothing. You and I have to create out of something, right? Like you've never created anything. It was like, hey, voila, let me just make something new out of nothing. That doesn't happen. But you and I are an expression of God's goodness as we create. And there is something about us in our lives intrinsically that loves to create new things. Ladies, you love it in the form of crafts. Most of us men, we love it in the form of a block of wood. But what we're created to do is to show others how creative we are. Now, we are to be creative in all things. We are to be cultivators, and we are to be excellent in what we do. But we are hardwired to do something. And the reason we're hardwired to do something is because we resemble and reflect the nature of God even through creativity. And that could be you right now in this moment, just doodling all over your paper as you're making notes. It could be found in lots of different places. It could be in your entrepreneurial spirit. It could be in your desire to take on a new task. We are creators, and we are wired to do that. The problem is, is that we don't always do it excellency. And I will tell you this, it even begins in the church. Dorothy Sayers says these words, and they are very profound, but they are also very difficult to hear. She said this, No crooked table legs or ill-fitting drawers ever, I dare swear, came out of a carpenter's shop at Nazareth. Nor if they did, could anyone believe that they were made by the same hand that made heaven and earth. She said, Jesus never gave you a shoddy table. Because if he did, he couldn't have been the creator of everything you see and know. She goes on, she says, And there is no piety in the worker that will compensate for work that is not true to itself. For any work that is untrue to its own technique is a living lie. 
yet in her own buildings, meaning the church, in her own buildings, in her own ecclesiastical art, in her music, in her hymns, and in her prayers, and in her sermons, and in her little books of devotion, the church will tolerate or permit a pious intention to excuse so ugly, so pretentious, so tawdry, and twaddling, so insincere and insipid, so bad as to shock and horrify any decent draftsman. Here's what she's saying. You are okay with gathering in mundane churches with absolutely awful messages, terrible music, lessons that are not prepared, and people being okay with just saying, well, we just couldn't complete all we had for the kids today. By no means should it ever be. If Jesus created us in his image, we are to reflect creatively in all that we do with absolute excellency. The problem is, is in our finite nature in the sin-filled world, we oftentimes become unmesmerized by our work. Why? Because our work is laborious, is a product of the curse. It bores us, it pains us, and we oftentimes feel no real success or even delight to be there. But the problem with that thought is that you are missing the very cultivated design in which you were created for, to work. And to honor God in what you do creatively. Which is why, friends, I'm preaching with excellency this year. More excellency than I ever have. With more vigor, with more excellency, with more prep than ever before. Why? Because it hit me to the core that we should never be ill-prepared. And we should never, ever, ever simply fake it to make it. That's not the work of the Christian. She goes on, she says, and why? Simply because she has lost, meaning the church, all sense of the fact that the living and the eternal truth is expressed in work only so far as that work is true in itself, to itself, to the standards of its own technique. She has forgotten, the church, that the secular vocation is sacred. Forgotten that a building must be good architecture before it can be a good church. That a painting must be well painted before it can be a good and sacred picture. That the work must be good work before it can be called God's work. Let the church remember this, that every maker and worker is called to serve God in his profession or trade, not outside of it. If people don't know Christ, it's not because the church oftentimes is just failing to do the job. It's because the church is not the building, it's the people, and the people are failing to do their job. And what is our job? Our job is to express God through spirit and in truth. Where? Everywhere. Every day. Every waking hour. Every moment. Every minute. Every second. Every moment. Why? For the glory of God and the good of others. For the glory of God and the good of others. So that means if you stink at your job, it means set a new pace. It means to resolve to do something different. Now, I hear it all the time. Hey, you set any goals, any resolutions? And I might offend somebody here, and so forgive me already for doing that. <laughs> hey, you set any resolutions? Oh, resolutions are stupid. You know why resolutions are stupid? Because we don't have the resolve to keep them. That's the fact. Like The fact of the matter is you don't have the discipline, the persistence to do what you said you would do which is exactly what Dorothy Sayers is meaning. The problem is not that you make or set a goal. The problem is, is you know deep down in your heart you don't intend to keep it. And you need gimmicks, don't you? You need plans. 
You need rewards. You need competition in order to do the very grand thing that God has created. Am I hitting a nerve now, aren't I? The only way you lose weight and keep it off is if you have something at the end. You know what? I oftentimes bet a four wins dinner. Isn't that hysterical? (laughs) I guarantee you, anybody in this room, I can take a bet to lose weight faster. I will beat you. But the problem is I will gorge on that same steak when I'm done. See the problem in my heart. Now, what is that a reflection of? It's reflection that my priorities and my purpose is off base. It just is simply helping us realize that the reason that we are creative, the reason that we should be creative in our expressions of worship and teaching and planning, the reason that we should be cultivators is because it is ultimately for the glory of God and the good of others. Is that what you believe? And if it's not what you believe, then why not? Because that is God's grand design if everything was working perfectly. And that, friends, is what you're going to do in the new heaven and the new earth. You're going to work. You're going to be cultivators and keepers. You're going to be stewards and protectors. I promise you. If you think that it's anything but that, if it's harps and clouds, then your imagery is wrong. It will be us working together with our king in the kingdom with great authority, with great pleasure, vindicating his purposes and proclaiming his glory for the good of others all the days of our life. Why not do that now? Now, real quickly, before I show you the last handful of things, let me give you a quick commercial. By and large, in my heart, I'm an entrepreneur. If you know me well, you know that I'm I'm always moving, always thinking, always planning, always preparing, sometimes to my own downfall, like, It can get me in a real bind sometimes. But I'm creative, and God designed me to do that. And I do that through a variety of expressions. One of the things that you might not know around here, but every piece of artwork that's ever come out of this place is designed by me. I love it. It's something I I absolutely do. I love. I create logos and do different work on the side for different people. It's something you just need to know about me. I don't hide it. Like it's, It's who God created me to be. One thing that me and a couple other guys have been working on over the last handful of months is a new ministry around here, and it's called Cultivate. And the ministry is called Cultivate simply because it's the opportunity to teach a skill and then see it applied to people's lives. Now, we're starting small, but I could see how this could change so many things within the church and connecting people from Sunday to Monday to real purpose, because you have skill sets that other people need, and you you have failed to see that. And the reason why I think oftentimes many of us have failed to see it is because you think, well, if I can get to the place where maybe I could do some ministry, or if I could just work up to the place, maybe I'm a journey group leader, or if I could work to the place where I could serve along students, or maybe I could be the student pastor, or hey, maybe one day I could be on staff, then you think maybe that's when I arrive. And the problem is with that, that thought process is it's totally flawed. You and I need to know that God has given you a skill set in this time and this season for this purpose, to be equipped for the glory of God and the good of others, where it is that God has you. Whether you are serving in education as a, as a, as a teacher, whether it is that you're a craftsman or builder, maybe you build homes, you ought to build the best home possible. If it is that you are doing clerical work, you ought to be the best. Administrative, you ought to knock it out of the park. There should be no better. You, you design websites, absolutely, you should have the best website. People ought to be flocking to you to know how to design a website. 
if it is that you do something that you consider a mundane task, then listen, you should do the mundane task to God's excellency and his requirement in every day. As if you are working heartily for the Lord, as if he is the one who inspects your work. And there should be no more mundane task. And there should be no more of this crazy, crazy thought that I'm going to slow down in the world that's speeding up. Because at the end of the day, the last time I checked, when you slow down and the world is speeding up, it means that you've died. But isn't our desire, how am I just going to slow down? I'm going to take it easy. Why? Because you desire comfort, right? You desire ease. Yes? But instead, what if you were the one who set the pace? What if you were the one who was the speed of the pack, the speed of the leader? Which if you were the one who said, people are going to work to my standard because I am excellent in all that I do? Would that change our community? Yes. Which is the whole idea of cultivate. Cultivate is going to be a series of, of, of really uh, opportunities to grow in knowledge. We're going to offer three, a series of classes, six weeks long. You can choose one. You can go to our website today. I'm sure there's people who have already beat you there, but you need to know space is limited. We're only going to take a, a handful because this is our experiment, our trial run. But we're going to offer photography, gardening, and songwriting right out of the gate. Um, I see in the future we're going to offer welding, woodworking, um, a ton of other classes that I'm going to sign up for. And, and that's what I'm looking at. I'm like, hey, what do I not know that I need to know? And that's where, so on Saturday morning, you're probably going to find me in a photography class. Because I'm like, I, I love to create. I want to learn more. Like, help me. And then here's the deal. Every class that we offer here, every series that you would go through to cultivate is going to cost you a little bit, which is about 20 bucks. And that's going to pay for your breakfast. Every other supply cost that you would need outside of your camera um, we're going to help pay for it at Stone Point. But what I want you to hear more than anything, the reason that we're doing this is because at the end, there's a project in mind. What's the project in mind? To serve others. See, it's for the glory of God and the good of others. And so if you're a photographer, then you're going to be taught and learned, and you're even going to express at the end of the class a tangible way to bless others through the giftings that you learn. Same with gardening. Same with songwriting. If you're interested in any of those things, you can go sign up. It starts January 28th. It's six Saturday mornings, ends right before spring break. There you go. I said enough. That's cultivate. The third thing, we are to resemble God in holiness. What does that mean? It simply means what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Be imitators of God as beloved children. I'm not going to put it for you up on the screen right now, but you can go look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 through 16, where Peter just calls us to be holy as Christ is holy. Friends, we are to imitate God in holiness. It means because we have his spirit in us, it means that the things that we do, whether it be creatively or working anywhere in the world, we are to resemble him in holiness. We should be set apart, consecrated, different. We are also to resemble him intellectually. How do we resemble him intellectually? Paul tells the church of Corinth in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 16, but we are to have the mind of Christ is what he says. The very last part of that verse, we're to have the mind of Christ, which if you have the mind of Christ means that you can't be double-minded. You can't have your mind, someone else's mind, and the mind of Christ. You have to have the mind of Christ. So how do we have the mind of Christ? We resolve to be his people. It means that we set our minds on not earthly things, but on heavenly things. So if we're image bearers, then we're reflecting his glory in all things, and we work for an audience of one. Everybody say audience of one. If that's who you're working for, then you have his mind, and you set your mind on his agenda. That's the point. And we know that even as we seek to do that, there is an enemy who is real, who is seeking to, to to kill, steal, and destroy. He is seeking to knock you off tax because that's his job. He's mining the heart. He is 
I'm getting too ahead of myself. He's blinding the hearts and the minds of unbelievers, and he wants to distract you from the very things that God wants you to do. He wants to deceive you. He wants to mock you. He, wants to, he even wants to question your intelligence. He wants to, you to believe that you have no worth and value in, the life, in this life, in this world, that you're too stupid to finish your program, that you're too dumb to go back to school, that you can't learn because it's always been hard for you. He wants you to believe that lie. But that's not how God created you. He created you to learn. He created you to continue to move forward. He created you to excel in something new, to find something new. Friends, are you doing anything new? Friends, have the mind of Christ. Be intellectually discerned. Colossians 3, 9, 10 simply says it this way. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its own practice and have put on the new self. That's by his spirit, and which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. We ought to be learning more about him as well. We ought to read our Bibles in grace simply because it allows us to know more about the creator and his design for our lives. Friends, we also resemble God relationally. Relationally. How? Well, he's a personal God, remember? Even though he's distant, David says, what, what is man that you are mindful of? It's like, Lord, like how are we, these little peons, these little ants on the planet Earth, how, how can we even believe that you're aware of us? Well, here's the deal. We know he's a personal God and he's concerned. And so just as he is concerned, we ought to be concerned. Concerned about how you care for one another. Who are you caring for? When's the last time you did something for someone else? Not because you were encouraged or not because it gave you some warm, fuzzy feeling in your life, but because you know that you're here for the glory of God and the good of others. When's the last time you served someone else? When's the last time that you cared for one another? As you see demonstrated in the early church in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 and 47. Hey, when's the last time that Paul, as he says to the church of Galatia, that you bore someone else's burden? When's the last time you lightened somebody else's load? If not, why not? Hey, when's the last time that you forgave someone else, that you... You actually moved past something that was really difficult, that you harbored some bitterness and you let go of it, trusting it to God, simply because that was what was good for the glory of God and the good of others. When's the last time you did that? So those are all ways that you see who God is and how we resemble him. But here's the last one. You remember, God is immutable, which is never changing. But here's the deal. This is where it kind of slows down for us. We're, we're not immutable. And so we resemble God incompletely. Like, God is perfect. You are not. God never changes. You and I are constantly changing. We can't even remember what we wore yesterday. We, 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 we struggle to, to see much ahead of ourselves. We, we want to plan, but we, we struggle, right? We're always changing. Our desires change. God has no needs. We have many needs. We don't resemble him completely. And we certainly don't resemble him perfectly. But we are still to resemble him. And I think that's what I want just to encourage you in real quickly as friends that you are, you are to resemble him. That just as he is holy, you and I should strive for holiness. Just as he gives justice and a desire for mercy, friends, we ought to be a people who desires right in a society where always is pushing wrong. We ought to desire mercy and grace to those that we disagree on. We ought to be forgiving as he has forgiven us. We ought to desire truth and not lies because that's who he is. That brings whole new meaning in this idea that Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, the very end of the Beatitude, Jesus gives you two direct and distinct imageries. One of them is light and one of them is salt. What was interesting, though, is I just had this thought in my head this week. What was the very first thing that God ever created? He says, let there be light. 
Isn't it interesting that as image bearers, he calls us that very thing, light? That he goes, hey, let there be light. What does that mean? This is what he says in Matthew 5, verses 13 to 16. He goes, you are the salt of the earth, but the salt loses taste. Hey, how shall its saltiness be restored? He goes, it's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under the people's feet. He goes, likewise, you are the light of the world, a city set on a hill, and it cannot be hidden. Nor do I... Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand where it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Who gets the glory? Our Father who is in heaven. Why are you salt? Salt preserves things that are decaying in the world around them. That's what salt does. Why are you the light? The light lets people see in a world of darkness. Friends, we need more salt and we need more light. What does that look like? It looks like you and I going out into the world and being agents of change and setting a new pace and being all that God called us to be. I can remember being in high school, and I'll kind of close and wrap up with this, but I was in high school and we were in off-season. Off-season was what you'd call um, a miserable end to the day. Uh, in which you were prepping for a, a, a sport. I was a football player, and I desired and aspired to play college football. Now, when I was in high school, just so you kind of get an idea, I was about 30 pounds heavier than I am today. And so I, I graduated at 264 pounds. And at the end of our workouts, our coaches would make us run a quarter. Now, a quarter was one lap around the track, and we would have to have time. And for linemen, you had to run the quarter in 70 seconds or less. And I was like, okay, great. And, and for me, I could run a quarter very easily in 70 seconds or less. But the problem with me is that I didn't aspire just to run a quarter in 70 seconds. I aspired to be a college athlete, and I aspired to be a good one. And so I changed my measurement by 10 seconds. And I believed that I could run a quarter in 60 seconds. And every day at the end of lifting weights and working out, I lined up with the rest of our linemen and I ran as fast and as hard as I could. I pressed my body and I can remember how miserable it was. But there's a point in time in your mind where there's just a shift. You know what I'm talking about when you just kind of, you athletes and you people who have ever done something difficult in your life, you're like, you know, like when you finally get the mental fortitude that you go, I'm doing this. That's how I did it. Now, what's interesting is, is that I began nearing that 60-second mark. And I can remember other guys on my team, linemen, who they began to get frustrated with me. And day in and day out, they would go, as we were running the lap, hey, dude, slow down. You're trying to make us all look bad. And they would begin to say just hateful things and, and things that in some ways would question even who I was. And I remember in a lot of ways just going, hey, dude, you're not my standard. And what I also remembered in that moment is I'm never going to dial it back for the sake of making others complacent. Because that's not what good team leaders do. And I just decided that day that I'm going to set a pace in my life. And it's going to be a fast pace. And sometimes people are going to have to keep up with me. But I decided that day that I wasn't doing that for my own glory. I was doing it because I wanted to be the very best person I could be and the very best athlete I could be. And that's the question I would have to ask you is, what does Jesus mean when he says, hey, they're going to hate you because they hated me? 
I think what that means in a lot of ways is this. When you begin to live like the Christ, when you begin to excel and push limits because you are a reflection and resemblance of who he is, not everybody's going to understand that. Not everybody's going to like that. And it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be easy because in some ways you could walk out of here and go, man, I feel like I just got a raw, raw, raw speech, man. Like I'm ready to go. But what I want you to understand is this. If your audience of one is what you're concerned about and you're cultivating and keeping, you're stewarding and protecting, then you need to know that you will have opposition. But that shouldn't stop you. And so let me just charge you with these last few words. And that simply is this. Friends, you have purpose regardless of your placement. It doesn't matter where God has you right now, you have purpose. Use it. It may not be the placement you desire. It may not be the placement that you think you deserve. But you are placed there for a reason. And wherever you're placed, whether you feel like you're the lowest on the totem pole or you're the lead on the echelon of, of the standard of run of the company, it doesn't matter. You are to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And we'll talk about that more next week, about how we do that every day and about how our worship exists for the glory of God, wherever we are. But friends, I'll tell you, you'll never understand the rest of the concepts we're going to teach if you don't understand this first one. And that is that you were created for him and for the glory and the good of others. And so I would just tell you, as you walk out of this room, exalt Christ and engage the world. Be steadfast, be steady, be deliberate, dedicated, be dependable. You should be principled, prayerful, persistent, mission-minded and Messiah-centered. Mission-minded and Messiah-centered. I don't know about you, but I can rally around that. Let me pray for us, friends. Father, I pray that you would help us to know that our lives have intrinsic value, that we are created in your image, that we are image bearers. That means that we reflect you in some way. It's not perfect. We mess up. We fall short. Lord, like there's so many ways where we don't measure up, that we miss it, and and that we, in some ways, live in a, a, in a place of guilt and shame and sorrow. And it just really is a struggle for us to get up and get moving again because of where we've been and what we've done. And, and how can I ever amount to anything because of all of my mistakes. But Lord, I pray that we would know that we are not defined by our mistakes. We are defined by our Creator. We're defined with great value. We have your Spirit. We can create and do new things regardless of where we are. We can resemble you in the way that we live our lives. Yes, we've made mistakes, but Lord, we can grow in holiness. We can have your mind. We can love others the way that you first loved us. And we can exist for the glory of our great God and the good of others, training ourselves for our future. One day, we'll get it right every day. But until then, help us to live for you every day with your help and with your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.